This is the March of History. Welcome to episode 38 of the March of History podcast. I am your host, Trevor Furness, recording in Huelva, Spain for the final time. And after this recording, I will be moving at least for the summer to the city of Valencia in Spain on the Mediterranean coast, south of Barcelona, and hopefully staying there for the next year. But that all depends on what school I'm assigned at as a teacher. But that's just some background information for you. Let's get back to the story of Julius Caesar. So we left off in the last episode with Caesar picking up a shield, joining his troops on the front lines and fighting the Nervii. It was a tough battle for the Romans. They were ambushed by the Nervii and their allies. They got spread out. And Caesar and the two legions on the right flank almost got wiped out. But through Caesar's leadership and, and through the tenacity of the soldiers and the officers taking charge, they were able to rally again and surround the Nervii and, and basically kill them all, or at least Caesar says kill them all, although he contradicts himself later. Uh, the Nervii fought bravely and fought to the death, and they were kind of the, or at least the last big gasp of the Belgic Rebellion. But the Belgae are not completely defeated yet. There is one tribe left. You'll remember there were three tribes that gathered with the Nervii, or two tribes that gathered with the Nervii, three including the Nervii, to fight Caesar and the Romans, and a fourth that was on their way to join the Romans. That fourth tribe, I've always referred to it, at least in my head when reading it, as the Aduatuci. But I, I've read since then that there's a few different pronunciations. You, they can be called the Aduatuci, the Aduatuci, or the Aduatuci. So which one exactly is correct? It's very difficult to figure out. So I think that Aduatuci is correct, since Aduatuci sounds very Italian, and they're not an Italian tribe. So I'm going to go with Aduatuci, but if I slip up in the telling of this story, and, and I call them one of those other versions of the same name, you know who I'm talking about. So the Aduatuci were on their way to join the Nervii and their allies to fight the Romans, and while they're on their way, they hear about the Battle of Sabbath. That's the battle I just referred to in, in the last episode. And they realize that it's already too late to join this coalition. The coalition has been wiped out by the Romans. So what do they do? They turn back and they head back home. And, and they try to, you know, or I guess they figure that it'll be a lot easier to resist the Romans on their own home territory. And they have no intention of surrendering. Perhaps they even think that the Romans will just leave them alone if they if they go home. But that's not the Roman style, and that's definitely not Caesar style. But in preparation for the Romans coming after them, the Aduatuki abandon all of their towns and all of their strongholds, and they send all of their people to one location. And the place they decide to retreat to is a town that seemed to them at least to be impregnable. It was a town on a sort of plateau, or maybe you'd call it a hill, and this hill or plateau had sheer cliffs on the vast majority of the hillsides, so you really couldn't approach from those sides. The only way you could get into the town, and the only way that an invader could attack the town, was through one small section of the hill that was gently sloping, but it was only about 200 feet wide. So that really narrows the area that an army can attack from. You know, three or, or more sides of this hilltop town are unapproachable and unassailable because of the steep cliffs. 
So, you know, you can kind of funnel the invading army into this small little area. And in that small 200-foot-wide gently sloping area, the Aduatuki had prepared for an invasion. They had high double walls to fend off invaders, and they had also sharpened stakes and had laid heavy rocks all along the wall to help support it and to help the walls withstand any attacks from the Romans. So this is quite a fortress they've built for themselves. Now Caesar arrives at this town pretty quickly, and he arrives with all eight of his legions. And the Aduatuki are feeling confident in themselves and in their warriors, and they immediately send out skirmishers, or cavalry, to go fight the Romans. And a bunch of small-scale skirmishes happen and are actually quite frequent at first when the Romans show up. These are not major battles. They're the, the typical skirmishes that precede ancient battles beforehand. It allows both sides to feel each other out, feel what kind of soldiers are these before actually getting into the big fray. Now, Caesar and his legionaries quickly construct a wall around the entire city to shut them in. This is called circumvallation, and it's a common Roman military tactic in sieges. This is the first time we see Caesar use it in the Gallic Wars. It will not be the last. In fact, his most famous battle involves a, a huge case of circumvallation, but we'll get to that later. That's the Battle of Elysia. But the reason that they would build a wall around the city like this would be to stop the enemy from receiving food from outside, to stop the enemy from sending and receiving messages to the outside world because you don't want them calling reinforcements and you don't want them to be able to escape in the night. And it stops them from sending out skirmishers because they can send out people to attack the Romans if there's no wall and ambush them from different forests. But if there's a wall surrounding your city and sentries on top of the wall with towers every so many feet they have a great vantage point to spot your skirmishers coming out and watch them the whole way and it becomes much tougher to ambush any roman lines so this is a great strategy for the romans to keep the enemy bottled in and to keep them under roman control and caesar says that the wall that they build around this city they don't actually ever mention the city that the uh, duotuki retreated to they don't mention the the city name or the town name but caesar says that the wall that they had built around this town had various forts along its length and these forts would have had light artillery in them artillery like ballistas that were similar to the ones that the romans had prepared to fight the belgae with these would have been essentially like giant crossbows that would have shot large i mean really giant arrows with Deadly accuracy and precision, very far distances, and would have been the type of things that the Gauls had not seen before, or that the Belgae had not seen before, and would have been pretty uh, intimidating. So now, the Aduatuki are shut into their town. They can no longer send out skirmishers. They can no longer collect food from outside the city. They can no longer hope to send envoys to other Belgae tribes for help. They are locked into the city. And soon Caesar has his Roman troops turn from constructing these walls and to focus more on constructing siege equipment. That means building ramps up to the city walls. That means digging earthworks. That means constructing movable wicker shelters to defend from arrows and spears as they build this other equipment and as they get closer and closer to the walls. And especially, this means building siege towers. 
Now, the, the Aduatuki can see all this happening from the heights of their walls, and they see these giant siege towers being built in the distance, and Caesar says that they actually mock and jeer the Romans for building these ridiculous large wooden structures so far away from the walls, and just basically thinking that there's no way these giant wooden structures can get anywhere near our walls, you're building them so far away, you're afraid to come near our walls... What are you guys thinking? You guys are a bunch of jokes, is, is what the Aduatuki are saying. But l- let me let me give it to you in Caesar's words. Caesar says in the Gala Commentaries, and he kind of says this from the perspective of the Aduatuki. He says, quote, What hands, what strength were men of such puny stature relying on to move this huge and heavy tower against their wall? For the main part, Gauls are very tall and hold our slighter build in contempt. End quote. So Caesar even says there that the Gauls are much bigger than the Romans as people. Just, you know, how tall and how muscular they are. The Northern Europeans at this time, at least, are much bigger than the Mediterranean people and much bigger than the Romans. And they think of the Romans as tiny, laughable people. And how are a bunch of these tiny guys going to move that giant tower towards our wall? And always remember, Caesar is writing these commentaries for a Roman audience. And you can imagine the Roman audience reading this and just getting fired up, just getting angry that they're being called tiny and puny and laughed at by the Gauls, all while building this incredible siege equipment. That should be amazing, right? (laughs) And yet the Gauls think of them as these tiny pygmy type people. Now, at this point, most of Caesar's legionaries are veteran legions, and they very quickly build these siege engines and begin to move them towards the town that the Aduatuki are in. And the Aduatuki can see these giant wooden towers moving towards their city from the heights of their wall, and they're just absolutely thunderstruck by this. They have never seen anything like this. These giant, ridiculous wooden contraptions that they were laughing at not too long ago are now quickly moving from a number of different directions towards their city walls. They have never seen anything like this, and this is just engineering beyond their wildest dreams, and to them it seems more than human. And so they decide that, hey... Clearly, these Romans are not what we thought they were, and they immediately send envoys to Caesar to try to surrender. So Caesar says of this in his commentaries, quote, But when they saw the tower being moved and coming close to the walls, the sight of it was so unusual and unexpected that it prompted them to send envoys to Caesar to ask for peace. The envoys spoke to the effect that, in their opinion, the Romans had divine help in waging war to enable them to move such tall structures forward so quickly. And so, they declared, they surrendered themselves and all their possessions to the Romans' control. End quote. I mean, listen to that quote. They literally say that the Romans have divine help in waging war. They have the help of the gods on their side. And these are, you know, that's a quote coming from ancient peoples that really did believe that the gods were there and interacting with people and helping them. So you you wonder how deep that goes if the Aduatuki felt that there was actually gods giving secrets to 
to engineering to the Romans, or if it was just that they were divinely inspired to create such creations, or what exactly they mean by you know divine help in waging war. But it's such a great line. It's one of my favorite lines from the Gallic Wars. And essentially, the Aduatuki says they're not even going to bother to fight these guys. These guys are so divine in waging war that it's not even worth our time to try to fight them. So let's just give up and we surrender all of our people and all of our possessions to Roman control just like that. Just from seeing the Romans build the siege towers and wheel them towards their city. These are people that the Aduatuki were laughing at and jeering at not very long ago at all. And here they are claiming them as being, you know, divine in, in, in their ability to wage war. This is an amazing turnaround. Now, the envoys for the Aduatuki also asked to keep their weapons, even though they've surrendered. Because the reason they give is that they're afraid that if they surrender and disarm, that their neighbors will come for them. They say that their courage is not looked at kindly by their neighbors, which sounds like they've probably done a lot of messed up things to their neighbors in the past in, in hit-and-run raids. And therefore, if their neighbors see that they've disarmed themselves, they will be abused by their neighbors left and right. Of course, Caesar can't possibly allow them to surrender and keep all their weapons. That's not the way a surrender works. So he says that he will accept their surrender and be merciful to them if they surrender before the battering ram touches the wall. That's the exact word Caesar uses, before the battering ram touches the walls. But they must disarm, they must give up their weapons, and they must surrender themselves to Rome's protection, and Rome will protect them if they surrender and forbid their neighbors from raiding them. And the Aduatuki, you know, they, I guess they basically feel they don't really have a choice at this point. You know, you've already come to Caesar and said you want to surrender. You don't really have a strong negotiating position. So they accept these terms and they throw their weapons over their wall. And the pile of weapons, Caesar says, is so high that it fills up the ditch in front of the wall and piles up above the ditch almost as high as the wall itself. And then the Aduatuki throw open their gates and the Romans enter. And as Caesar says, there is peace. But Caesar, for his part, he understands his soldiers. And I think it's Adrian Goldsworthy makes a great point that at this point in the Roman Republic, many of the soldiers come from the urban slums of Rome or, you know, are just a very poor socioeconomic background or people with not much futures or people who have criminal pasts. So they're, they're not people that Caesar wants to trust around the riches of this new tribe that just surrendered to him. So even though he loves his legions, he still understands them. And as night comes, he orders his legionaries out of the city because he's, I mean, he literally says in the commentaries that he's afraid for the safety of the Gauls if his legionaries spend the night in their city, that they might cause some kind of harm to these new surrendered peoples. So Caesar orders his troops out of the city and orders them to close their gates for the night. You also have to imagine that Caesar was afraid that they would have the temptation to pillage and steal from the from the Aduatuki now that they had surrendered. So this is a very merciful 
clemency Caesar showing, right? He is not only accepting their surrender without sacking their city, he's forbidding his troops from hurting them or from stealing from them, and he's even ordering his troops out of their city and allowing them to close their gates at night to protect their people. Caesar's treating them extremely well, especially when you put it into the context of this is the ancient world, where people were just absolutely brutal. But the Aduatuki have a plan of their own. And either this was their plan all along, or maybe their people are divided and some wanted to surrender and some had never had any intention of surrendering. We don't exactly know what causes the Aduatuki to do what they do next. They've already surrendered to Caesar. They've thrown their weapons over their wall. It was a huge pile of weapons. So the Romans assumed that that was all that the the Aduatuki had, this huge mountain of weapons outside their city now. But it turns out that this giant pile of weapons that they've thrown over their wall was only ever two-thirds of their weapons. And the other third of their weapons are hidden within the city. Now that it's nighttime and the Romans have won, the Aduatuki expect that the Roman guard will be let down. They expect the Romans to be drunk and celebrating. And so they arm themselves again and they sneak out in the middle of the night. And they use makeshift shields that they've come up with on the spur of the moment out of wicker or bark with animal hide covering it. Since I guess they threw all their shields over the wall or at least didn't have enough left to arm themselves with. And in the middle of the night, they do a surprise assault on the Roman camp. The Romans that were just so clement, so merciful to them, they do a surprise nighttime assault on the Roman camp at its weakest point. Now, let's flash over to the Roman perspective. The Romans were not caught unprepared by this. They were not partying and, you know, with no nobody watching the camp walls. No, Caesar had given them very strict orders for guards to be vigilant. And when the attack began, the Roman sentries knew what to do immediately since Caesar had given them the orders. They lit pre-prepared signal fires. And these signal fires were a signal to the entire Roman camp to assemble, to fend off an attack from an enemy. And the Roman troops quickly scramble out of their tents, scramble out of the forts, and they man the walls. And you really have to credit Caesar as a commander here for not allowing his troops to abandon themselves to partying and to revelry and to make sure that they were well prepared and ready for any kind of attack that could happen like this. So many times in history you hear about armies, you know, when they think they've won, kind of letting their guard down completely. And here Caesar made sure that his, that this didn't happen to his troops. And by doing this, he saved a lot of, of their lives. And these are the kind of things that little by little his troops see and begin to appreciate. And you know their love for him as their commander will grow with these kind of instances. Now, the Aduatuki have found the weakest point in the Roman fortifications. Remember, the Romans have a circular wall going around their town. So the Aduatuki are attacking this wall. The Romans have manned the wall quite quickly due to Caesar's orders to have the signal fires ready. And from the heights of these walls, the Romans throw spears and they shoot arrows and the slingers throw stones down at the attacking Aduatuki. But the Aduatuki, for their part, they fight bravely, 
and they fight desperately. I mean, Caesar says up makes a point in the commentaries to say that they fought like men that knew that this was their last option, that now that they've betrayed Caesar's clemency like this, now that they've accepted his surrender and yet attacked anyway, this is their final chance. And if this doesn't work out, they're done for. So they are fighting with absolute desperation. But in the end, they have no chance because the Romans were well prepared. They had these excellent walls that Caesar had them create. They are great at engineering. They're great at building defense works. And they were ready for this attack. And Caesar says in the attack, 4,000 of the Aduatuki were killed and the rest retreated back to the city, back to their, their fortification. Now Caesar and the Romans, for their part, decide not to do a nighttime assault. Nighttime fighting was always like it was a real gamble in the ancient world because there was just so much confusion, and some of it would depend on was there enough moon to see at night. And even if there was, there was so much confusion and so much ability for certain troops to get lost, and troops to not recognize each other and end up fighting their own allies. That. You don't see it happen too often in the ancient world. So Caesar and the Romans decide not to attack this city at night, and they wait for the morning. And in the morning, the Romans smash down the town gate, and Caesar says that at that point, there was no one left really to defend the town, which, if they only killed 4,000 of them, seems hard to believe. But, you know, it is, I guess, only one tribe, and, and they did have limited numbers of weapons, and maybe at that point there was just no will to fight. But either way, nobody really defends the town, and the, the Romans are easily able to smash down the town walls and enter. And Caesar has offered them mercy once, and they have taken advantage of him, and they have thrown it in his face. So this time, Caesar will show them no mercy. And all of the people of the town... Men, women, and children are gathered up and sold in one bulk sale as slaves. And Caesar says that the buyer of these slaves actually reports to him that there were 53,000 people in total. Again, men, women, and children all sold in bulk in one sale to slavery. And Adrian Goldsworthy makes the point that it would have been normal in this era for most of the women in this group to have been raped by the Roman army before being sold as slaves. And if this is the case, it's certainly something Caesar leaves out in his commentaries. You know, many times the ancient sources are where we go to for the most accurate and the most detailed information, but they can be very sparse on details when it comes to these sorts of atrocities. And Caesar can be, at times, shockingly forgiving and merciful for an ancient Roman general. But when his mercy is taken advantage of, he can be utterly ruthless, make no mistake. And I should also make the point that selling slaves and seized property like this was a major source of profit for the Roman army. And Caesar would have received a lot of money from this sale. And in fact, all the soldiers in the army would have received some proceeds of the sale. And the tribunes and the centurions would have received a larger share than the common legionaries. But we'll come back to the subject of Caesar making money in Gaul in a future episode. For now, we're going to leave that there. Now, around the same time as Caesar wins this victory over the Aduatuki, he receives news from young Publius Crassus. Remember, that's the son of Caesar's great benefactor and friend and, and richest man in Rome, Marcus Licinius Crassus. 
that man's son, Publius Crassus, is serving as Caesar's legate. So young Publius Crassus had been sent by Caesar with a legion to go pacify a number of tribes in, in near the Belgae in, in Gaul. And now Caesar receives a letter from young Publius Crassus that these tribes along the Atlantic Ocean, who he had been sent to conquer, have surrendered to him. And all of them are now under the sway of Rome and under the sway of Caesar. So Caesar can officially say that the war with the Belgae is over and Rome and Caesar himself are victorious. In fact, even in the commentaries, Caesar declares Gaul as being pacified. And this is the word that he will continually use rather than saying conquered. He always says pacified, which is a, you know, a, quite an understatement when you are fighting massive battles and conquering people and destroying cities and wiping out entire tribes to call it simply pacifying, but this is the word that he uses. Now, this is the first time Caesar announces to the world that Gaul is pacified, but it will not be the last. Gaul still has a lot of fight left in it. But Caesar makes sure that Rome knows about his victories, that the entire Roman Empire, and especially Rome itself, are aware of these great victories that he's achieving. He spreads the word far and wide. And he writes about these victories in his commentaries, and he likely distributes these commentaries to Rome at the end of each campaign season. We don't know that for sure. Some people say that he wrote all the commentaries at the end of the Gallic Wars. Others say that he wrote each one in the winter afterwards and distributed it. I believe that. I, I believe that Caesar wrote them in the winter and distributed them in Rome. I'm not a professional historian, so you know my opinion doesn't count for much, but I think that that's likely what he did. But... Any way around it, Caesar is making sure that Rome is aware of what he's been doing in Gaul on their behalf. He's, a, he's making sure that they're aware of these brilliant victories that he's winning. And as a student of history, one of the first lessons I learned from reading history was about self-promotion. And it sounds kind of funny to say that, but it's true. Because an important lesson to take away from the greats of history is that they all promoted themselves. Take, for example, Alexander the Great. Yes, he is remembered for being a great general, and yes, he is remembered for being one of the greatest conquerors, but in my opinion, he's even more so remembered because he had the great nephew of Aristotle follow him around everywhere he went, writing about his great deeds and spreading these manuscripts to the entire world, right? We would, so Alexander can do all the great things he wants. If he doesn't have somebody write it down and promote it shamelessly, then we don't even know about these deeds. Or let's take Caesar, for example. Caesar is a household name today for his great abilities as a general, for his great abilities as a politician, and for what you know, his impact was on the Roman Republic. But I would argue that also in large part, he's a household name today because he took the time to write about himself in the Gallic commentaries and to shamelessly plug and promote himself and his own personal brand and spread it throughout the world. You know, Caesar can fight all the amazing battles he wants and, can f and write all the amazing legislation he wants, but if he doesn't write about his own deeds and spread the word to people, then nobody knows about these things. 
There have been countless great generals throughout history that you have probably never heard of. Why? Because they didn't promote themselves, because they didn't write about themselves, or if they lacked the writing ability of Caesar, they didn't bother to look for somebody else to do the job for them. Sometimes the greatest figures in history are those with the best eye for propaganda. So let's take this lesson away from this story of Caesar's life and in your life. Don't be shy to promote yourself and to shamelessly plug yourself, you know, whatever career you're in, whatever job you're in, or whatever business you're starting, because I promise you, Caesar wasn't afraid to shamelessly promote himself, and it worked out great for him. But getting back to Caesar's victory against the Belgae, this is huge news in Rome, and for multiple reasons. You see, Rome had a long-standing fear of northern barbarian invasions, especially Gallic invasions. In fact, the Gauls were the only people to ever sack Rome way back in 387 BC when the Roman Republic was still in its infancy. And the Romans had such a fear of barbarian invasions after that day, after that time in 387 BC when the Gauls sacked Rome that they had an actual barbarian invasion emergency fund that the government kept aside in case barbarians ever invaded again. It was literally like a natural disaster fund that we would have today for hurricanes or tornadoes or earthquakes, but the Romans had it set aside for barbarian invasions. Because of this lesson delivered to them by the Gauls way back in their infancy as a republic, that you know at any moment... Barbarians could explode out of the northern Alps, come down, and sack your city out of nowhere. These people were absolutely terrifying to the Romans, and to see Caesar teach these barbaric, fearsome Gauls to respect the name of Rome was extremely satisfying to the Roman audience and extremely comforting to know that there was somebody like Caesar with his hardened veteran soldiers out there confronting the Gauls and keeping them from ever invading Italy and Rome again. And Rome already knows about Caesar's victories over the Helvetii and over Ariovistus and his Germans. But now they find out about his victory over the Belgae, and Rome goes absolutely wild. In fact, the Senate votes Caesar a public thanksgiving of 15 days. That's longer than any general in the history of Rome had ever received. Even Pompey hadn't gotten 15 days. Pompey had only gotten 10 days of thanksgiving. So Caesar's literally making history in the fact that the Senate is voting him 15 days of thanksgiving. And Cassius Dio, one of our ancient sources, says of this, quote, The Romans at home, when they learned of these achievements, were astonished that he had seized so many nations whose names they had known but imperfectly before, and voted a thanksgiving of 15 days because of his achievements, a thing that had never before occurred, end quote. So Dio says that the Roman people had barely even known the names of these Belgic tribes before this, and suddenly they get word that Caesar has defeated these Belgic tribes and brought them under the control of Rome, and they are just wowed by this. And Tom Holland, in his book Rubicon, The Last Years of the Roman Republic, gives a great quote that kind of shows you why Rome went so wild. It gives you a feel for it. Holland says, quote, Barbarian migrations had always been the stuff of Roman nightmares. 
Whenever wagons began rumbling across the north, the reverberations would echo far away in the forum. The Republic had no fiercer boogeyman than the pale-skinned, horse-maned, towering Gaul. Hannibal might have ridden up to Rome's gates and flung his javelin over them, but he had never succeeded in capturing the seat of the Republic. Only the Gauls managed that. Way back at the beginning of the 4th century BC, a barbarian horde had burst without warning across the Alps, sent a Roman army fleeing from it in panic, and swept into Rome. The capital alone had remained sacrosanct, and even that would have fallen had not the sacred geese of Juno alerted the garrison to a surprise attack. When the Gauls, having slaughtered, looted, and burned at will, had withdrawn as suddenly as they had come, they had left behind them a city resolved never again to endure such indignities. This was the steel that had enabled Rome to become the mistress of the world. End quote. So Tom Holland gives a great feel for how the Romans saw the Gauls as these, how does he put it, he describes them as pale-skinned, horse-maned, towering Gauls, and that even Hannibal, who had brought Rome to its knees, had not sacked the city, yet the Gauls had done it. And if you're confused about what Holland is saying about the geese of Juno alerting the Romans to this surprise attack on the Capitoline Hill, let me explain this to you. The Gauls had invaded the city of Rome and had taken the city, but there were still a contingent of Romans defending the Capitoline Hill and keeping the Gauls out of that area. Now, one time during the night, during the siege, the Gauls had snuck up onto the Capitoline Hill, had evaded the Roman defenses, and gotten into the Capitoline Hill. Now, none of the guards saw the Gauls, and none of the guard dogs barked at all. But these sacred geese of Juno had started honking very loudly, and that had woken up the Roman garrison, and they had been able to go out there and fend off the Gauls, and therefore stave off absolute disaster, and uh, you know negotiate a, uh, a payment to the Gauls and, and eventually get the Gauls to leave. But none of that would have happened if these geese had not honked and let the Romans know of this first. So with that in mind, Tom Holland goes on to say, quote, Even three centuries later, however, memories of the Gauls remained raw. Every year, guard dogs would be crucified, a posthumous punishment of the dogs who had failed to bark on the capital, while Juno's geese, as an ongoing reward for their ancestors' admonitory honking, were brought to watch the spectacle on cushions of purple and gold. A more practical measure was the setting aside of an emergency fund to be used only in the event of a second barbarian invasion. Even now that the Republic was a superpower, this was regarded as an eminently sensible precaution. When men lived not as citizens, but halfway to beasts, there could be no knowing when their savagery might not suddenly erupt. End quote. So Holland paints a great picture there. And really, it's an awful picture, but <laughs> if you're an animal lover, it's an awful picture. Basically, the Romans would have a festival each year where they would crucify just random dogs on the street, I'm guessing. I don't I don't imagine they were pet dogs. Could be, though. I don't know. But they would crucify dogs and parade them around the streets as punishment for the fact that their ancestors, the guard dogs of the Capitoline Hill, had not barked 
at the invading Gauls who had snuck up onto the hill. And to watch these crucifying of the dogs and this whole big parade, the, the Juno's geese would be brought out. And they would be put on purple and golden cushions and decorated in purple and gold to watch these dogs being crucified since their ancestors had been the ones who had hawked to let the Romans know of the Gauls sneaking up onto the Capitoline Hill. So a wild and weird and twisted holiday that the Romans had. And the image of these regal-looking smug geese all decked out in purple and gold cracks me up. But the crucifixion of the dogs definitely breaks my heart. I'm a, I'm a dog lover myself, so don't like to see that. But this is ancient history. What can you do? Like I keep saying, people were absolutely brutal back then. But all of that happened way back in 387 BCE Back when the Gauls delivered that defeat to the Romans, the only reason I describe the story to you now is to give you kind of a glimpse into the Roman psyche as to why this was such a big deal that Caesar was defeating the Gauls in battle and humbling them and bringing them under the Roman sway because the Romans had this deep-seated psychological fear that the Gauls had inflicted on them in their earliest days back when they were a young republic in 387 BC. And now Caesar was out there in the cold reaches of the north exercising these demons for the people of, of Rome, and they loved him for it. And that is where we will end our episode for today. And I had said that today we'd get to what, what's been happening in Rome while Caesar's gone, but I, I kind of realized that there was more to talk about with Caesar and Gaul first. But in the next few episodes, we will go into detail about what has been happening in Rome while Caesar has been gone. For those that have made the claim during Caesar's life and, and even afterwards, historians, that Caesar was the cause of this chaos and violence that was erupting in Rome, that his year as a consul was insanely inflammatory and was causing all these issues, well, we can see when Caesar leaves, things do not calm down at all. When he's in Gaul, things actually heat up and get even more chaotic. So I'm going to catch you up on what's been happening in Rome because that's going to that's always going to impact Caesar and what he does in Gaul. He always has one eye on Gaul and one eye on the politics in Rome. And even though he's not in Rome, he's definitely involved in Rome and he has many proxies and many surrogates trying to accomplish his his goals for him. Plus he has his allies, Pompey and Crassus, and their triumvirate to look after. And whenever I finish catching you up on what's been happening in Rome while Caesar's been away, we will move on to what Caesar has planned for this winter in Gaul because Caesar's plans will change the Roman world forever. And they are very important to the story of the fall of the Republic and to the story of Julius Caesar's life. But all that in future episodes. And then we will finally get back to the Gallic Wars and back to Caesar's battling to, as he says, pacify Gaul or conquer it. But before you go, don't forget to give the March of History's Instagram a follow. That's at the March of History. I post all sorts of interesting history content, not just Roman history, but history from all over Europe and all over the world on there and videos of different castles and monuments I see here in Europe. And sometimes it's a little flavor for the local cultures here in Europe. And sometimes it's old Roman ruins and other times it's Spanish castles, just a whole assortment of history that I see here. 
Uh, and sometimes it's also quotes from the people, the characters that we talk about, like Cato, like Caesar, like Cicero. Also, our Twitter is at March underscore history. The Facebook page you can find by searching the March of History. It has all the same content as the Instagram channel. Our email, if you want to send us any feedback, is themarchofhistory at gmail.com. Please, please, please leave us a review on the podcast store if you listen on an Apple device. And make sure to share the podcast with others and subscribe to the podcast so that you get notifications when we uh, put out new episodes. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Get out and enjoy your day. And we will see you next time on The March of History.